room. So I think that's all the announcements. Aren't you turning your Bibles to 1 John? 1 John. We're going to be looking at 1 John. And we have a longer passage, but I won't take up my time and read all of it. I'll just take our time to look at verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2 of 1 John. 1 John chapter 2, 18 and 19. Let's read those two verses together. God's Word says this, Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Let's, let's pray. Oh, Father, we once again come before you. And at this point in our service, we do ask that you would help us to understand your word. Help us to see the glories of Christ in this text that we are going to spend time in. Oh, I pray that you would give us perspectives that are according to your eyes, not our own. Help us to see what you see. Help us to diagnose our heart that may have strayed away from you. And instead, help us to return to Christ. Return to the love that we once had. Oh, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Proverbs 23.23 says this, Buy truth and do not sell it. Today, truth seems to be an unwanted commodity. Our world is not buying truth, but avoiding truth. Our world is not buying truth, but trying to modify truth. Truth is reality. Everything in this world is changing except for God's divine revelation of all that is. This is why the prophet Isaiah says this, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's why Jesus said, heaven and earth may pass away, but my words will never pass away. Yet our society has lost all foundational truths. Instead of buying truth, we are exporting truth out of our country and in exchange, buying lies. The postmodern mindset where absolute truth doesn't exist has crept into the church. Today, truth is an unsought commodity and in exchange, Christians have produced their own versions of reality to the beat of the cultural drum. They wax eloquent with terms like ex-evangelical, a term where a former Christian who once believed in the saving gospel of Jesus Christ according to the scriptures have become apostate. They've abandoned the faith, but that abandonment doesn't happen overnight. That process of shipwrecking the faith is called deconstruction, which is a postmodern term that has seeped into Christian jargon. In short, deconstruction is one's personal journey where one dismantles traditional beliefs and dismantles traditional authorities in their own personal pursuit of truth. 
And the outcome of many of these truth seekers is what's called deconversion. They become what's known as an ex-evangelical, a former evangelical, a former believer in the saving gospel of Christ, but now they have deconverted. Now, some ex-evangelicals are not content with what has happened to them in their journey. They want to recruit other Christians and steer them away from traditionally held beliefs. They want other Christians to deconstruct their faith, to modify their faith, and to abandon their faith and to deconvert. Now, you may not have heard of these terms, deconstruction, uh, ex-evangelical. These are terms that are new, but the ideas are very old. You see, something similar has taken place in Asia Minor under the watch of an old preacher by the name of John. According to Irenaeus, the Apostle John was writing around 85 to 100 A.D. during the reign of Emperor Trajan. John is the youngest of the twelve apostles and lived the longest. And as the last living apostle, there was something that concerned John. Something that concerned him regarding the churches in the vicinity of Ephesus in Asia Minor. And that concern was this. Do people know the real person and work of Jesus Christ? Because a good number of Christians in his day have deconstructed and have deconverted from the faith and are trying to steer Christians away from the faith. And if you're wondering what is 1 John all about, turn to chapter 1. I'll tell you exactly what it's about. It's about the person of Christ. It's about getting the person of Christ right. Look at how the book begins. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which is with the Father and was, with, and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. These are the opening verses because in John's mind, the most important thing that we are to have right is the person and work of Jesus Christ. In 1 John, the most repeated word is that word, no. It's repeated 40 times. By this we know. By this we know that we have passed out of death into life. By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us. By this you know the Spirit of God. Everyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. No, no, no knowledge is what John wants you and I to have and to understand knowledge of Christ. Because what will happen is if you have a wrong view of Christ, is you'll have a wrong version of Christ and you'll have a, a new idol of Christ. Notice how the book ends. Go to 1 John. At the very end, he begins with making sure you understand Christ and he warns at the very end, this is what will happen if you have the wrong view of Christ. He says this, little children, guard yourselves from idols. That's the ending of the book. Because John was concerned about false views of Christ and he would warn them about this version, this idolatry that they would have, a, a Jesus of their own imagination. You know what the consequences are if you have the wrong version of Christ? Look at chapter 1, verse 4. This is what will happen. 
you'll be, you'll be robbed of joy. Look at what he says in verse 4. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. If you have the wrong version of Christ, you will be robbed of joy. If you have the wrong version of Christ, furthermore, you'll be robbed of the forgiveness of sins. Go to chapter 2, verse 12. He says this, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. You'll be robbed of truth. Verse 21 of chapter 2, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. You'll be deceived if you have the wrong view of Christ. Look at verse 26. He says this, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. In chapter 5, verse 13, if you have the wrong view of Christ, this is what will happen. These things I have written to you that you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. So friends, here's what happens if we have the wrong view of Christ. We'll be joyless. We'll be legalistic. We'll be filled with lies. We'll be deceived. And we'll be doubting our salvation. That is a horrible way to live the Christian life. That's what's at stake if we have the wrong view of Christ. So how can we be, how can we be protected from such nefarious views of Christ that are unbiblical, that would cause the saints to be joyless, would cause the saints to doubt, would cause the saints to wonder, are my sins really forgiven? Our passage does that for us because God has given us the Spirit of Christ to remain in the truth of Christ by the Word of Christ. God has given us the Spirit of Christ to remain in the truth of Christ by the Word of Christ. So in order to understand and know the Spirit of God which He has given to us, we are first of all, we need to understand our danger. We need to understand our danger. Look at how verse 18 begins. He says this, Little children. It's a term of endearment. It's, a, it's like an older man, which John was. And at the same time, he's speaking to younger Christians. He's saying, little children. It's a term of endearment. And at the same time, it's a theological truth because we are children of God, where we call God our Father. And he's reminding us. He is our pastor. He is our pastor. He's speaking to us. And he's telling us that this is the last hour. It's the last hour. And that phrase, last hour, it's a, it's a temporal word that speaks of urgency. It means that we are living in the period of time from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ. That entire period of time is known as the last hour. Sometimes it will be called the last days or the final days. Uh, or in these last days, as it says in Hebrews 1.1, John wants to frame the situation. There is danger. We are in danger. There's a danger amongst us. We are in that last hour. The clock is running out of time, and the Lord could return at any moment. He could return at any moment. Now, that could be good, or that could be bad. It could be good for those that know Christ, because they'll be with Him and see Him for who He is, and we will be like Him just as He is, it says in chapter 3. But yet, at the same time, it could be bad, because how could we stand before a holy and righteous God? On whose righteousness will we have? And whose righteousness will we stand when He looks at us with perfect eyes seeing every sin that we have committed? So it is the last hour. It's a comfort to know that it is the last hour. I want Christ to return, don't you? 
Don't you want him to return now after all that we've been going through as a society with the foundational changes that are happening at a rapid clip? It's just going so fast. Oh, Lord, come. That's why the saints would say, come, Lord Jesus. He then says, you have heard the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have appeared. Now, I want to pause here because when I say the word Antichrist, if you, like me, have probably seen a lot of the movies about Antichrist and all the, the horror movies regarding him, whatever images that may have popped into your mind, I want to be careful and protect us from modern views of Antichrist. It's a familiar phrase, the Antichrist. It means, anti means in opposition to, and also it could mean in the place of. So the Antichrist figure, the one that's called the Antichrist, is one who is both against Christ and also at the same time wanting to take the place of Christ. He may be that man of lawlessness that's talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 that we've been reading in our evening services. He may be that figure in Daniel chapter 7 to 11 that's going to come and sit on the throne in Jerusalem and rule. He could be the beast that's described in Revelation chapter 13 that's going to suffer a fatal blow and then come back to life. The point is that the audience was familiar about this Antichrist. But John's concern isn't necessarily about this one Antichrist. His concern is primarily about the many Antichrists, plural. He says Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have arisen. Many Antichrists have have arisen. His goal is to speak of them and tell us that they are everywhere. These Antichrists, they are everywhere. They're amongst us. And notice what he says about our danger. First of all, observe with me the panic. There is no panic. Look at how John says, little children. It is the last hour. He's a father comforting. He's a pastor who is steady saying, little children. It's the last hour. In a time of great conflict, John's pastoral tone is what we need to hear. You want your pastor to be steady. You want your pastor to be unshakable, immovable. One commentator says that John is surprisingly very casual about his approach to the danger. Because you see, John is not trying to stir up panic in the church, but instead reminds them, little children, let me tell you, think soberly about what's at stake. Antichrists are everywhere. So panic. The second thing about our danger is, notice, it's about also this, purity. Impurity. Look at verse 19. It says, they went out from us. The they there refers to the Antichrists. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they all went out in order that it might be shown that they all are not of us. Notice the apostles' concern. What's the most important task of the pastor? What's the most important task of the shepherd? People are leaving your small church. They're leaving. They're leaving. And they're leaving the church. They they grew up in the church and then they're now leaving. And notice what John's concern is. He's not concerned about the size of the church. He's not concerned about the popularity of the church. Because God's concern is about the purity of the church. God is fully aware that there will be continual defections from His church And that's a good thing because God's concern is the purity of His church, not the size of it. It's far better to have a handful of people 
who believe in the true biblical Christ than to have thousands who are constantly doubting and constantly reinventing new versions of Jesus. We tend to focus on those who have left us, but God's concern is for those who have remained. It's easy to judge those who have left the Christian faith, but the apostles' concern is for those that have remained and for them stay pure. And he doesn't attempt to win back those antichrists that have, that have left. Because John's concern is about purity, not popularity. It's the last hour. It's important that we focus more on a small number of people who fear God than to have a large crowd who fear man. That's been the case when churches have focused so much on trying to appease culture and to keep whatever nefarious teaching might take place for the sake of keeping numbers. John says, no, let them go. They went out from us to show that they were not really of us. Third thing I want you to know about the danger is it's personal. It's personal. It's a personal danger. Where do the Antichrist come from? Where do you think Antichrists come from? Are they the ones dancing on the Grammy stage wearing a costume with horns and a red suit looking like the devil? Is that the Antichrist? Are the Antichrists coming from outside the church writing laws to arrest Christians? Are the Antichrists those that are writing laws that are trying to corrupt the minds of our children in our schools and social media and education? All those corrupting influences, are those the Antichrists? No. He says those things may have the spirit of Antichrist, but where does Antichrist come from? They come from within us. They went out from us. I say it's personal because you may know some of these antichrists. And it may be very personal because you may have entrusted yourself to the teaching of men and women who have shown to be trustworthy for a time only in the end to defect and to teach different various versions of Christ. And you can say to yourself, no, it can't be. They would not do that. And yet here we are. They have established your trust only to break it. They've become popular and seemingly having a healthy reputation only for them to violate that trust. The danger is real, but we're reminded we're not to panic. Maintain doctrinal purity. Be careful because the danger is personal. Dear friends, we need to know our danger. We need to know the danger that we are in. We need to think soberly in these days. But third, secondly, we also need to not just know our danger, but we need to know our fight. We need to know what it is that we are up against. In verse 22 and 23, here's who we are fighting. Here is what we are fighting. In verse 22 and 23, read these verses with me. He says this, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. And jump down to verse 26. He says this, These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. You see, dear friends, our fight is not against demons. It's not against uh, possessions. It's not about... I name... Jesus, for this spirit to be removed. Our fight is against lies. It's about lies, particularly about Jesus Christ. Dear friends, if you love flowers, you must hate weeds. 
If you love the truth, you must hate falsehood. That's why John says in verse 18 earlier, uh, in verse uh, uh, 16, do not love the world. I'm sorry, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. We must love what God loves and we must also hate what God hates. And what God hates is lies about God that originate from Satan himself. Go back to Genesis chapter 3. Let's, let's look quickly at Genesis chapter 3. And notice that up until the point when Satan speaks, God has been giving nothing but divine and perfect truth, perfect revelation. No errors, no questions. Perfect and clear communication between God and humanity. But the very first time Satan in the form of a serpent speaks, it says this in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field which the Lord God had made and said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The very first time a question is asked is from Satan himself. It's from the serpent. Satan is trying to deconstruct Eve, isn't he? Satan is trying to cause Eve to dismantle revelation that has already been given. And not only is he he's trying to steer her away, and not only is he deceptive, but look at what else what he says. He says in verse 4, And the serpent said to the woman, You surely shall not die. He is now lying directly against Christ, against the things about God, and he's lying directly regarding who God, what God has said. He is a liar. He is the father of lies. No wonder Jesus said when describing Satan, he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks is a lie. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Antichrists are liars because they are trying to deceive you. And notice in verse 26, back in 1 John, it says they are trying to deceive you, meaning this is a constant, present participle, constantly trying to deceive us. It, deception never takes a break. You can't walk one day into church and thinking, or walk out of church thinking, there's no more deception. We are living in a fallen world. Deception is around us. It's a constant battle. Our fight is about the truth. We don't fight Satan. We don't fight demons. We don't fight Antichrist. But our fight is for the truth, the preservation of it. We don't fight against persons. We fight against ideas, strongholds that have taken hold of people's minds, that have led them astray, away from the glorious person of Christ into a fabricated, manufactured, man-centered version of Christ. So what is the battle regarding the lies about Christ? Well, there's two main lies that are promoted about Christ. The first is about the person of Christ. The person who He is. It says in verse 22, He says, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? You may already know this, but Christ is not His last name. Christ is the title. Christ is the, t the word Christos, which is a translation of the Old Testament word Messiah, which means anointed one. Jesus is God's chosen one. And the word Messiah denotes four things. It means separation. Someone or something has been separated for God's particular use, whether that be a priest who's been separated like Aaron with oil anointing on his head, or it could be the altar in the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 29. It has an idea of being separated for God's use. 
Secondly, it speaks of authorization. The authorizing agent in the anointing of someone, the Christing of someone, is God. God does this. He anoints kings. He anoints priests. Thirdly, there's recognition. Whoever God anoints, those around must recognize this is God's chosen man or God's chosen instrument. And lastly, the last term that speaks of Messiah is salvation. Because associated with Messiah is the promised deliverance. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the Christ, speaks of how He will one day deliver His people as the Spirit-empowered Savior, according to the book of Isaiah. And here's what Antichrists have done. They have denied that Jesus is the Christ. They have denied that Jesus is the Anointed One. Now, I understand We don't live with tabernacles. We don't live with priests and kings that are anointed with oil on their foreheads. But one of the things that are implied by someone who is anointed is that you will submit to that anointed one. There is submission to the Lordship of Christ. And that's where we find ourselves in this day and age that, that there is teaching that says you do not need to necessarily repent of your sins. You don't need to submit to Christ as your Lord. You can embrace Him as Savior But you can repent later. But right now, you can receive Him as your Savior. And that kind of teaching is showing that Christ can be received easily without any cost, without any repentance. And so therefore, He is Savior, but He is not Lord. There's modern versions of that teaching where Christ is taught in such a way that it makes it very easy for anyone to come to Christ. All that's removed from that teaching is all the hard passages about denying self, taking up your cross, following after me, repenting, turning back from your former manner of life, and instead follow me. Is that how you have received Christ? Some of you in this room may have received Christ in that way where you have said, I believe Him as Lord with my mouth. I profess Christ. But let me ask you this, do you possess Christ? You may have said Him with your mouth. Many on that day will come to me and say, Lord, Lord. But do you have Him? Do you know Him? Because someone, somewhere, may have told you, I just have to say He's Lord. I just have to confess He's Lord. But John is saying, that's not Christ. That's not how Christ works. That's not His person. His person is this. He is both Savior and... And He is Lord. Therefore, you submit to His Lordship. So if He says, don't do that, you don't do that. And if He says, follow Me, you follow Him. You leave those friends, those influences that you once had, that reputation you once had, you forsake that, you forfeit that. And in exchange, what do you have? You have Christ. And He is enough. And He's wonderful to have. Because even though when you were alone, when all your friends are left, you will have Christ. That's why we sing that, don't we? Because He is enough. And that all speaks to His person, for who He is. He is Lord, and we submit to His Lordship. But far too many Christians today don't submit to His Lordship. They love His saving work. I don't want to be baptized. I don't want to do that. I don't have to do that. No, I'm not going to repent of my... That's okay. Why are you being so legalistic? That's the modern ethos of how Christ is presented today. It's easy. Just come, man. Just come. As I mentioned, I don't want to repeat my sermon from last week. We are trying to broaden the way. And Jesus says, no, narrow is the way. Because there's many versions of Christ out there. Narrow is the way to life. Secondly, it's not just the person of Christ, but it's also the work of Christ. Antichrist teaching also includes that 
the work of Christ as the one who actually died for all of our sins. Go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. I know this is a controversial passage, but read with me. And it says this, And He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. John is trying to communicate to us that Christ has actually died not just for some of your sins, but for all of your sins. He didn't just die for us, the original audience being the Jews. He died for all the sins of all the people in all the world. He's trying to tell us that sin has actually been paid for. The wrath of God has been satisfied. But there are some that make Christians wonder, I don't know if He really has died for all my sins. Maybe there's something that I need to do to atone for my sins. Maybe I need to give more. Maybe I need to attend more. Maybe I need to attend this Mass. Maybe I need to attend this particular service. I need Christ to die for my sin again and again and again. That's Antichrist. That's an Antichrist teaching. Forgiveness of sins is done. It's once and for all. All of it. This propitiatory work is final. So be careful when there's teaching that tells us today that you don't need to confess your sins because it's all been forgiven. And so it has a casual notion that no more fear of your sin. Yes, we confess our sins not because it's not forgiven. We confess our sins because we want to restore a relationship that we don't have with God because of our sin. That's why we confess. We want to continually confess and restore our walk with God because sin prevents that fellowship with God. So we confess our sin, not so that we can be forgiven again. That's been done. But there are those who want to produce a version of forgiveness that is no, not complete, but incomplete. Our fight is against the lies produced by antichrists that are among us. And here's something that you need to know about these antichrists. They're Christians by name. They're authors that you read. There's teachers on YouTube that you listen to. There are people maybe among us. They believe they're Christians. They're convinced they're Christians. Don't don't think for a moment that an Antichrist is going to come through our doors with a name tag that says, Hello, my name is Antichrist. No. Remember their goal in verse 26 is they are trying to deceive you. They have privately deconstructed internally and now they're humbly trying to say, you know, my journey has been such and such. It's been a long, painful deconstruction. But I realized that all this Christianity was really just a power dynamic of oppression. And so we want to be careful when we think about who it is that we're listening to and the way we're going to find out how we protect ourselves from this, but they are amongst us. They are Christians that are misinformed and self-deceived, but they're compelling others to do the same, to deconstruct. If you've not heard of this, you will hear of it. There's a lot of ink being spilled on this topic. But what are we to do? I don't want to leave us here. What are we to do? We know our danger. We know our fight. But we also need to know our help. We need to know our help. Look at verse 20. Here's where our help comes, friends. He says this, verse 20, But you have an 
anointing from the Holy One. And you all know. He says in the King James, you have an unction from the Holy One and you all know. And I have written to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. God has not left us to cope against these antichrists on our own. He has given us help. And the help that He has given us is the anointing from the Holy One. Now anointing, what does that mean? There's two things that we can learn about our help. First of all, our help is from Jesus. Our help comes from Jesus. He says this, But you have an anointing from the Holy One. Let me work backwards and then forwards. The Holy One. Who is the Holy One? There's some debate on who this Holy One is because you have three choices of who the Holy One is. It's either the Father, it's either the Son, or it's the Spirit. you got three. It's a multiple choice. Pick one. I, think the, I don't think it's that simple. I think the answer is it's Christ. It's Jesus because in the Gospels, in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, in Luke chapter 3, verse 34, in John chapter 6, verse 69, He is referred to as the Holy One of God. Behold, the Holy One of God. We don't know them, but we know this one, the Holy One of God, referring always to Christ. And theologically, it is Jesus who sends another, who sends an anointing, who sends the Holy Spirit to His people, as He says in the Upper Room Discourse. In John 15:26, So the help, first of all, comes from Jesus. Secondly, the help is the Holy Spirit. The unction, that unction is the Holy Spirit. It, it is the one, he is the one that Jesus gives to us. Now when we think of that word unction and when we think of that word anointing, there's a lot of misconceptions that comes to our modern minds today. Sometimes when we think of anointing, we think, oh, a holy blessing. Oh, some sort of zap, some sort of charismatic zap where all of a sudden now you're... you're you're wildly ecstatic and saying utterances that are unintelligible. And so that means, oh, he's received an anointing. Very popular in Pentecostal churches. That's not this word anointing. The word anointing is the word chrisma, which is a very direct root of Christos, which means you've been smudged. You've been marked. You've been identified, separated by God. You've been Christed. You've been deputized as a chosen one. And the, and the anointing that you've received is not oil, but a person. You've been given a person. You've been given the Spirit of God. And, he, and you have Him. And He abides in you. Look at verse 27. He says this, And as for you, the anointing which you receive from Him abides in you. And you have no need for anyone to teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as He has taught you, you abide in Him. This one that has been given to you is the Holy Spirit. It's who Jesus says will be with you and will teach you all things. And this is something that only Christians have, by the way. Antichrists don't have this. Antichrists don't have this. Go back to verse 20. Notice the contrasts. He says, but you have an anointing. Because further back in verse 19, notice the distinctions that he's making. They went out from us. They were not really of us. They had been of us. For they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. This is something that only us, only those who are in Christ have. 
We have this anointing. We have the Holy Spirit. We have this indwelling person inside of us that teaches us and reminds us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what He does. He gives us knowledge about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Every true believer will know this. This is what they will know. That God has come in the flesh in the person of Christ. New Christians may struggle with difficult things. Understanding the end times. They might have struggle understanding the Trinity. They may have difficulty understanding doctrines like election, justification. They may struggle with a lot of those things. But the one thing that every true Christian will believe is that Jesus Christ is God with us. He is God incarnate. He is God who came down on the earth to be with us at the very minimum. This is something that is born by the Spirit of God who illumines us, who helps us see that this Christ, He's not just a man. He is the God-man. And that I can go to this man. That I can confess my my sins to this man. Because this man came to earth to die on my behalf. And to do what I could not do, obey the law completely and fully. He tells us of who He is. This is what the, the Spirit of God does for us. He reminds us of this truth of who Christ is. He lives for us. He died for us. He was raised for us. We are saved by believing in what Jesus has done for us. And this is what the Spirit of God does in every believer. You have an anointing. That's why this is something that John is saying. You all know this. He says, you all know. I'm writing to you not because you do not know it, but because you do know it and know lies of the truth in verse 21. I'm not writing anything advanced here. Haven't you remembered what it was like to be saved? Didn't you come to the place where you realized who Jesus was, that He is God, the God-man? He is the one who is convinced of who Christ is? This is nothing esoteric, nothing advanced, that this is who Christ is, the one who has come to save sinners. And that's wonderful because this is the kind of people that God saves. He doesn't save intellectuals. He saves common people who know they need a Savior. John Newton, in the final days of his life, you know John Newton, he he wrote Amazing Grace, former slave trader. In the final days of his life, he said this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. The truth about Christ never leaves a believer. They may be confused, maybe on some of the details and finer points of doctrine and theology, but the one thing that never leaves a believer is that Jesus is a wonderful Savior and that I am a great sinner and that there's no one else that can save me but Him alone. And so I confess all my sins to Him alone. And I may leave and I may depart from the, from the church, I may walk away, but the one thing that a person cannot unremember is that Jesus died for me. That He's rescued me from the abyss of sin that I was finding myself in. And so those that walk away from the faith, those that leave the church, those that deconstruct, those that become evangelicals, those who abandon the faith, and I'm not talking about those who stumble and fall into sin and repent. I'm talking about those who have completely abandoned the, the faith that they once knew and now oppose Christianity. The reason why that is, is they never had the person of the Spirit in them. There's nothing living in there. They're dead. That's why they live that way. 
And, you, and, you're, and you're a mom and you're a, a dad and you're confused. Why is my son like this? Why is my daughter like this? They go to church. It's hard to swallow the truth that your son and daughter might be dead because they don't have the Spirit of God in them. And that's why they're always wondering. They're always wondering. But the one who has the Spirit of God that God gives to undeserving people, He opens their eyes to see Jesus for the first time and see Him for who He truly is. Lord and Savior. I submit to Him. I follow Him because He saved me. He didn't just save me so that He would leave me on my own. He saved me so now I follow Him. I may not know a lot, but that much I know. That's all you need to know to be saved. That's all you need to know that you are a sinner, that God in Christ has died for our sins. And only those who have been born again have this Spirit of God in them. And that's wonderful. That's wonderful to know that when Jesus leaves His sheep, He doesn't leave them alone. He says, I will send you another helper because He's a good shepherd. He, does, he knows He's departing and the, the saints are scared. And He says, don't worry. I'm going to send someone. I'm going to send someone. And He's not going to be different. He's going to be just like me. In fact, one of the things the Spirit is going to do for every believer is He's going to remind you of my nearness. I am with you. How is it that Jesus can say, Lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. And then He leaves. Isn't that funny? That's the last thing He says in the next book of Acts. He says, Bye guys, I'm out. He leaves. The only reason that's possible because He gives us the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God is God Himself, where the Spirit of God tells us, you're not alone. You have Christ. And He is with you. He will protect you. Greater is He who is in you than He who is in the world. You need to be calm. You don't need to fear the Antichrist. Because you have the Spirit of Christ in you. And what does the Spirit of Christ in you do? It causes you to remain in Christ. He causes you to remain and stay close to Christ. So much so that he says in verse 27, and as for you, the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you. It remains in you. You do not need for anyone to teach you. But as His anointing teaches you about all things and is true and not a lie and just as it has taught you, you abide in Him. Some have been confused about that passage saying, well, does that mean I don't need the Bible anymore? Well, many people do believe that. There are people who believe, you know, I don't need the Bible. I don't need this antiquated old book traditionalism really about male patriarchy. I don't need this. I need a fresh unction from the Lord. I need a fresh revelation. And so they view this passage. You don't need any teachers. They put the book down. They receive revelation. What that really means is they're just opening themselves up to all sorts of demonic mischief. But instead... What the Spirit of God does is, what He's saying here is you don't need anyone to teach you. He's saying you don't need Antichrist to teach you anything. You don't need to follow those guys or gals. You have the Spirit of God in you. And what He will do is remind you of the truth that you've already known. Now I need to stop and ask this question. Why would He have to say you don't need to listen to the Antichrist? I mean, isn't that obvious? I mean, John, why, why do you have to, why, I mean, Captain Obvious, why do you have to tell us this? It's obvious we don't need to follow the Antichrist. I think he's saying that because the teaching of Antichrist is so appealing. It's so attractive. There's something about the teaching of Antichrist that is so 
appealing to our natural sensibilities, our flesh. And I want that. I want what he's talking about. I want what that preacher's talking about. I just need to do this. Oh, I want that. And so he says, you don't need anyone to teach you. You don't need that man, that antichrist teacher who, who has perverted the person and work of Christ. You don't need him. You have the Spirit of God in you who reminds you of who Christ is. And how does he remind you of who Christ is? Because of what's been told to, to you from the very beginning. That is the Scriptures. The Scriptures. The, the Scriptures that's been given to you. It doesn't mean you don't need teachers because clearly John is teaching them. He is teaching them. When Jesus left us, He gave gifts to men. And what were those gifts? He gave some as apostles, some as pastors, some as evangelists, some as pastors, some as teachers. For what purpose? To equip the saints for the building up of the body of Christ. So teachers are necessary. What John then must mean here is not we don't need teachers in general. What we don't need are those smooth-talking, smiley teachers that pervert the truth about who Jesus Christ because they will one day have a millstone hung around their neck and they will die a thousand deaths in hell for what they have done leading Christians astray. You don't need those kinds of teachers because what we have is protection. As for you, let that which abide in you which you have heard from the beginning what you've heard from the beginning is the Word of God. What we have seen, what we have, what John says, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have beheld in our hands, handled concerning the Word of life. Remember, the audience is second generation Christians. They weren't there to hear Jesus speak. And so what they must now read and understand is our letters about Christ. These letters later became what was called the Bible. These letters were letters written to churches. These letters were then compiled and became what we now can have as the New Testament. And this is now we as second generation, third generation, 100th generation Christians have. This is what we've been told from the very beginning. Let that abide in you. Because the Spirit of Christ uses the Word of Christ to allow you to remain in the truth of Christ. God gives you the Spirit to abide in Christ. He reminds you, walk with Him. Walk with Him. Test and see if what is being said is of the, the Scriptures. Test the Scriptures to see if it is... Test the teaching and see if it is so. In conclusion, let me say this. Spurgeon was once asked, what is the greatest problem with the church of his day? 19th century, Spurgeon was asked this question. He said this, the problem with the church is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. The problem with the church is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Isn't that true? Antichrists are almost right. They always have half of it right. Jesus is Savior, but He's also Lord. It sounds so appealing. There's Christian-sounding things that continually inculcate us. Antichrists are almost right. Therefore, we're to exercise discernment. Practically speaking, this makes me want to put up my guard when I hear Christian-sounding things entering the church that are unhitched from the Bible. Because we've been told that Antichrists aren't going to come from the outside. They come from the inside. Paul warns the elders of Ephesus, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in from among you. 
not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. This means that our guard ought to probably be higher when we're around other Christians telling us new things. It's as if God is telling us to look out for the things that are coming inside His church. Be vigilant to what you're watching. Be vigilant to what you're hearing and be vigilant to what you're reading. Personally, I try. I, I am weary, weary and weary among when popular things are being promoted amongst Christians. Just to even say there's Christian pop culture is is astonishing. Christianity was never meant to be popular, but here we are. We have Christian pop culture. Think about it. In our country, there exists a Christian pop culture. We have Christian music. We have Christian movies. We have Christian comedians. We have Christian celebrities. We have Christian athletes. We have Christian news. Pop culture is everywhere. And it's just continually inculcating, filtering in through the church. In the history of the church, Christianity has never been popular. And here we are. And so do you think that maybe we should be all the more vigilant when everyone says to you, hey, you need to watch this new Jesus movie. Hey, you need to watch this great episode about Jesus. Hey, you need to read this new Jesus book. It's wonderful. The more wonderful it is, the more I say, no, thank you. I tend to walk away from that stuff. Not to say that's not entertaining. You have freedom. You can probably dissect that stuff. My kids know that when I listen to Christian music, it's not a good thing. There's always dad making his comments about all of that. Just be discerning. Be discerning, church. Be discerning. Do not forfeit the true Christ in this last hour that we are in. There are constantly new versions of Jesus being constructed because the old versions of Jesus are being deconstructed. Don't forfeit that Christ in this last hour. Know our danger, know our fight, and know our help. God has given you the Spirit of Christ to abide in the truth of Christ by the Word of Christ. Let me pray. Father, Oh, help us this hour that we are in, this last hour. We are so grateful that you have not left us to ourselves, that we are not left alone, but that you have given us the Spirit of Christ, the anointing that is in each one of us. That we would be able to be reminded again of who Jesus is, that He is the one who died for us, that He is the Savior of all men, not just some men, of all men. That's why I pray for anyone here today who may not have bowed their knee to Christ and have been wondering, do I really know Him? Oh, I pray that they would see Jesus as both Lord and Savior, that they would submit to His rule in their life as well as His salvation that He offers. Because He's not just any Lord. He's a good Lord. He's a kind Lord. He's a gracious Lord. He's not a harsh Lord. He's a tender, compassionate Lord. Oh, I pray, would you save sinners and save your people? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.